0: Andrew C. McCarthy. Uh, We got to know Andy when we had lunch uh, with him, Uh, Roger and his wife Alexandra, Joe and Sharon, uh, Karen and me uh, at a fairly decent little place in uh, Manhattan uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, since that time, we've gotten together uh, again on occasion and we correspond frequently. Uh, I am insanely jealous of uh, Andy's ability to write prolifically uh, and to say things that are pretty important when he's doing so. As some of you might know, uh, I do a little writing myself each morning when we're uh, in town, uh, and uh, a writer like that is plagued uh, with the fear that, that there will be an inadvertent uh, omission or error in fact or time or place, uh, and Andy turns this stuff out uh, for National Review Online Uh, just like it's uh, coming out of the top of his head. It's just incredible. Uh, And this may be the emotional point that you were talking about, Joe, because uh, I think there is solid evidence that Andy may be uh, the one person in the United States uh, who may be more responsible for keeping us safe right now uh, than any other individual. Uh, His work... Uh, as he was the Assistant <coughs> United States Attorney for the Southern District of Manhattan when he prosecuted the bombers of the World Trade Center uh, which occurred back in 1993 uh, and further attempts to bomb landmark uh, sites in, in New York City uh, and also uh, the work that he did uh, uh, for the bombings uh, of our embassies in uh, Kenya and uh, Tanzania I believe uh, just, just incredible uh, Andy I uh, went to school at uh, Columbia University, and from there uh, went on to uh, pick up a law degree at uh, New York University, which, interestingly enough, when it was started, was uh, sort of a spin-off of Columbia's law school. Uh, He is just an amazing person, uh, a very down-to-earth guy, a really fun person to be with, uh, in spite of all the things that I said that would perhaps make him sound a little bit uh, hard to get to know. Uh, Andy's a wonderful fellow and he does tremendous work for the United States. Uh, he is, as I told somebody out here, uh, perhaps one of the few people in the country uh, who could lay claim to to being a, a true expert on what the Middle Eastern mindset is and what it might be doing to all of us uh, collectively and as individuals uh, right now. Andy McCarthy. <coughs>
1: Thank you so much, Dwight, for the, for the kind words. I, I, I can't echo enough what Roger said about the new criterion, although I did suggest to him that if he would just change the name of it to Solyndra, perhaps it, <laughs> the, the, the problems could be, uh, could be solved quickly. Um, I, I'm very grateful to, to Dwight in particular for those uh, kind remarks because they go to the, the issue that I want to speak about tonight, which is um, what... How little attention we've paid to the to the Middle Eastern mind in general, and to Islamist ideology in particular. Um, it, it seems that from the very beginning of our uh, confrontation with Islamists, which now goes back uh, almost fully two decades, we've gone out of our way not to see whatever the connection is between. Uh, Islamic doctrine on the one hand and Islamic terror on the other, which has been the, the, the main crux of what we've had to deal with. And because we've gone out of our way not to see that, there are dynamic developments going on in the world now which I, which I think we just really don't understand uh, and as a result almost instinctively misinterpret. So uh, what I thought might be useful is to try to explain what I saw when I first got into this because I, I think I had the same mindset back in 1993 uh, as most of the country did because I knew about as much about Islam back then as anybody with a reasonably good education in the United States, which, which is to say not a whole lot. Uh, and I wanted to believe exactly what we were saying as a government, which is that um, what happened at the World Trade Center in February of 1993 was an aberration, was a fringe group, a cabal of knuckleheads who happened to be uh, Muslims who conducted an atrocious attack, which could have actually been much worse. I, I, I've said before that one of the great miracles, one of the great, probably uncommented on miracles of modern history, is the fact that only seven lives were lost at the World Trade Center attack, which, you know, when you think about it, is, is less than uh, a weekend in some of the hotter spots in the United States, even. Uh, we're talking about a 1,400-pound urea nitrate bomb that was detonated at high noon on a Friday at a point in time when we proved that in that congested area of lower Manhattan there were anywhere from 60 to 120,000 people on a typical Friday. Uh, They set off the bomb in the bottom level of the garage and the explosion, the epicenter of it, was about two and a half football fields long and at its highest point went up six stories. Uh, Not content with trying to mass-murder people in the building. And the plot was, what they were trying to accomplish, was to take down one tower in the hope that it would collide into the other tower and take the both of them down. But the plot, the, the ambition of it, was to kill tens of thousands of people. But not content with that, they also strapped cyanide and hydrogen tanks to the bombs. And the purpose of that was to attempt to aerate the cyanide with the explosion in the hope that they would not only kill people at the World Trade Center, but you know, going much farther out into the area of lower Manhattan. So literally, when you talk to these people afterwards, the plan was to kill tens of thousands of people. And the fact that they only killed seven under the circumstances really was miraculous. Um, miraculous in a, in a good way. Uh, in the sense that the, the death toll was so low, but, but maybe with the downside that we didn't take the threat as seriously as we otherwise would have if their ambitions had met the, the atrocious conduct that they pulled off that particular day. Uh, as I said to the group last night, it's not like anybody sat around the table and said, are we at war or is this a crime? Um, you know often people ask well you know why did the why did we make the policy decision to take this national security problem this obvious act of war that they did and treat it like, like it was an ordinary criminal justice problem and i think really at that point in time at least nobody made that calculation what ends up happening is the military is not allowed to operate inside the domestic United States it has installations here but it doesn't operate as a military force um, the only institutions of government that actually drilled to respond to catastrophic events not just terrorist attacks but any kind of catastrophe were the ordinary what we now call first responders the police the fire department the uh, the emergency medical technicians the FBI and what happened back in 93 was, we had this explosion that we actually thought was, a, was a, an accident. We thought a, a transformer had exploded. It took a while to even get around to the idea that was, we actually were dealing with a bombing. That took about two days to get to that conclusion. But what happened was the police responded, the FBI responded. Within about a week, we had four people in custody. When you have people in custody and you don't release them on bail, you have to indict them. When you indict them, the case gets kicked to a judge, it gets assigned, and then you're off to the races. So without even really thinking about it, you're in a litigation. I think it's a fair criticism that by the time 1998 comes around and our embassies are attacked, and if you think about it, by 98, we not only had by then the World Trade Center attack, the later attack or attempted attack on New York City landmarks that was the the second part of our case, the Lincoln and Holland Tunnels, the the, uh, UN, the FBI headquarters. Um, They had a plot in 1994 that was called Bojinka, where they blew um, airliners out of the sky, or at least the plan was to blow American airliners out of the sky in flight over the Pacific. They never actually carried that out, but they did do a dry run, killed a a Japanese tourist and almost – took the plane down. Uh, 1996, we have an attack at Kobar Towers where 19 members of our air force are killed, which turns out to be a joint attack by Iran, Hezbollah, and Al-Qaeda. And then in 1998, over 230 people are killed or 220 people are killed at our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. I think by 1998, we should have gotten the message that this was not a criminal justice problem, and that we were only emboldening the people who were trying to kill us when they would hit us with bombs and we would respond with subpoenas and indictments. Uh, As I pointed out to the folks last night, um, Osama bin Laden, the head of al-Qaeda, the orchestrator, the maestro of all this, was actually indicted by the United States in June of 1998. That's before the embassy attacks, before the attack on the USS Cole that killed 17 of our United States sailors, our our Navy members, uh, and before 9-11. So obviously filing an indictment and adding new charges to it really didn't do much to deter him. Uh, And I think, you know, it's, it's a fair point that the government should have understood, at least by 1998, that what we were being confronted by was bigger than a law enforcement problem and that it needed to be confronted in a way that uh, didn't have the justice department uh, as not only the point of our counterterrorism sphere but actually the the entirety pretty much of what government's response to terrorism was and the reason we haven't had a reprise of 9/11 is because after 9/11 we actually did change our tactics didn't mean the justice department was out of the equation but we decided to treat a war problem as a war problem uh, we went from the due process standards that that, uh, that exist in peacetime in the domestic United States, and we resorted to the laws of war, which is the rule of law in wartime and has always been in the history of the United States. So we took people as prisoners rather than as criminal defendants. Uh, we interrogated them. Uh, we, we decided that collecting intelligence and preventing attacks was much more important than uh, allowing attacks to happen and contenting ourselves with conducting criminal investigations and prosecuting whoever was left to prosecute after the attacks had happened. Um, so we really do go from a prosecution paradigm to a prevention paradigm. It's intelligence-based, and it is the reason why we haven't had another attack. I mean, the, the basic reason why we haven't had another attack in 10 years, I mean, you could go down probably six or seven reasons, but... The most simple reason is we have killed and captured an awful lot of terrorists since 9-11. In the the eight years from 1993 until the 9-11 attacks, it's frequently said by people who are championing handling terrorism as a criminal justice problem that prosecutors batted 1,000, that every single person who we apprehended in a terrorism case was convicted, and that's certainly true. But what's also true is that the every single person they're talking about for those eight years is 29 people. Eight years of attacks, uh, thousands of Americans, as it turns out, killed, and we apprehended 29 people in eight years. And out of the 29, I think 15 of them were actually tied to the World Trade Center attack. So after 1993, you're talking about 14 or 15 more people. So that really is just going to embolden your enemies if, you, if they continue to mass murder you and you really essentially do nothing in response. So we changed our approach after 9-11 to having the military treat terrorism like a military problem, going after them in the uh, safe havens that they had globally, using our intelligence resources to find them, using our intelligence and treasury resources to track them, uh, and using the Justice Department not to conduct the main operations, not to go after the main guys, but to the extent that there were uh, growing terrorist cells or groups in the United States, you would use the Justice Department to go after them or to even go after people for providing support to terrorist organizations. So I think that part of the threat... Uh, it took us a long time to get to the right place, but we're dealing with that effectively now. And it's not always a, a pretty picture, but for the most part, uh, they've done a very good job. I mean, we haven't been hit again. We've, we've been lucky on a couple of occasions, but for the most part, we have not had another catastrophic attack. We've prosecuted a lot of terrorists in the United States. We've killed and captured a lot of terrorists overseas. That part of the threat uh, is under control and works well. And look... Al-Qaeda is not the organization today that it was on 9-11 for the very simple fact that from 1996 until 9-11, we allowed them to have safe haven in countries where they could train and prepare attacks, and that's what they did. Since 9-11, they've had to worry about whether they would survive through the next day, and it's a lot harder to do the kind of, uh, of planning that you have to do to carry out a 9-11-style attack if you're worried about living through the next day rather than actually planning out the attack. That part of it, I think we've finally gotten right. It took a long time to get here, but I, but I think we have gotten it right. Here's the problem. It's not the main part of the threat. It's the most immediate part of the threat. It's certainly the most serious part of the threat. It's the most horrific part of the threat, in the sense that if you have completed terrorist attacks, there's nothing that there's nothing that even equates to it in our experience. I mean, it, you go down to Lower Manhattan now, where we still don't have the the Twin Towers rebuilt. We'll never have the Twin Towers rebuilt, but we don't have the World Trade Center rebuilt into something. Um, it, it, it's it's a devastating impact still to this day in in Lower Manhattan. Um, But that part of the threat, the terrorist part of the threat, I I think is is pretty much under control. What we don't have under control is how the threat manifests itself in other ways and how it is a broader and more insidious threat against our institutions. Um, Going back to what little I knew about this in 1993, What we said as a Justice Department to the American people back then was that we had a tiny collection of maniacs who happened to be Muslim who were perverting Islam by committing atrocities under the banner of Islamic ideology, claiming to be following Islamic Islamic doctrine and Islamic scripture, but actually betraying it uh, and perverting it. And I wanted to believe that. Um, I didn't know enough to to believe whether it was true or wasn't true, but I certainly assumed that uh, that that sounded like a pretty reasonable explanation of things to me. Um, What ended up happening was the the blind shake never testified in our trial, but you always have to prepare in the event that the lead defendant does testify. So I had to get ready to cross-examine him. And I thought, you know... If what we've been saying as a government is true, if they're lying about this, if they're just perverting the doctrine, you know, I'm, I'm an Irish Catholic guy from the Bronx. I wasn't going to get into a theology discussion or debate with a doctor of Islamic jurisprudence, graduated from Al-Azhar University, the seat of uh, Islamic learning. But I did think that if, if what we were saying was true, there must be three places at least where I could nail them where I could say, you say the doctrine says this, but the doctrine actually says that. Uh, So I went to work, and I combed through his speeches, I combed through his book, I combed through his sermons, uh, I went through just about everything this guy had said publicly for years, and he had been very prolific going back decades. And the problem I encountered was every time he said, the doctrine says this. The Quran says this. The Hadith says this. The the authorized uh, uh, biographies of Muhammad say this. He was right. He would say, Islamic, uh, you know, uh, this chapter of the Quran compels that we um, strike terror into the heart of the enemy. And you would go to the Quran, and it would say, strike terror into the heart of the enemy. Um, He wasn't lying about what the doctrine said. Now, it was a fair criticism, and people certainly made the criticism, that the doctrine says a lot of other things and that, that maybe he was taking things out of context that needed to be considered in context. Over the years, I actually came to think that that wasn't a very convincing argument either, but at least it was an argument you could make. But one thing you shouldn't have been able to say is what we had been saying, which is that they were lying about what the doctrine was and they were perverting the doctrine. Now, does this make everybody a terrorist? No, of course not. But what it does mean is that what we were painting as an aberrational, fringe, lunatic movement actually was not an aberrational, fringe, lunatic movement. And where people that we wanted to, to portray as moderate Muslims had severe disagreements with organizations like al-Qaeda or outfits like the Blind Sheikh was running, what they were disagreeing about in the main was tactics. They were all on the same page about what the bottom line was. They wanted to institute Sharia, which is the law of Islam, uh, and they wanted to create Islamic societies. They were in disagreement about how you should go about that I mean, Al-Qaeda wanted to do it on the express train, right? And and these other organizations uh, were content to do it more incrementally. But there was no question that they were in agreement about where they wanted to go. And they had more in common with each other than either group, the people we wanted to call moderates or the people we were calling terrorists, had with us. And that was a frightening revelation. The other thing I thought was very scary was it was a very lengthy trial and it had an unusually long defense case most most uh, federal trials this this trial happened to take between 9 and ten, 10 months no long trials usually don't take that long and if you have a defense case in a trial it's usually a day or two or a couple of days we actually had a two and a half month defense case and during the course of the defense case a number of people were brought in to testify who were portrayed to the jury as moderate Muslims. And when you got to hear them, you were absolutely convinced that that was true. They were unquestionably moderate people. They would never in their lives even think about committing a terrorist attack. But every now and then when they were on the stand, a question would come up about some point of Islamic law or Islamic doctrine. You know, what does jihad mean? What is the obligation of uh, charitable giving, etc and on three different occasions these moderate people who were on the stand would say I wouldn't be competent to answer that question you'd have to ask him and they would point to the homicidal maniac in the corner of my courtroom who had (laughs) issued the fatwas for all of the the terrorist attacks and ultimately by the way issued the fatwa that approved the 9-11 attacks in which 3,000 of our fellow Americans were killed. Did this mean that these people were going to go out and commit terrorist attacks? No. But what it did mean was, notwithstanding that this guy was not only a terrorist, but he was the the head of all the terrorists, they were willing to trust him with what the bottom line meaning was of central doctrines in their religion. It didn't mean that they were going to go out and act on them, but it also meant that he he was a pretty powerful person for a reason. And if you think about it, look at the blind shake. Blind, diabetic. He had every malady known to man. Bad ticker. Uh, he needed Juicel Pen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no C P R. But but if you think about it, couldn't build a bomb. Couldn't conduct an assassination. Couldn't plot out an attack. The only power he had over the organization was the power to say yes or no which is the thing that they need to work to operate and what gave him that power was the fact that he was a renowned authority on islamic jurisprudence it was his mastery of the ideology it wasn't that he was a you know that he that he built the best bombs on the planet or or anything that you would think of when you first think about a terrorist so it seems to me that it's a big mistake <coughs> To to try to confront this without thinking about what causes it, and what we've been content to do—we were talking about this a little bit uh, last night—is um, to say that Islam is off the table. We're not going to talk about Islam at all, and therefore something else must be causing the terrorism. So it's you know Abu Ghraib or military commissions or Gitmo or Israel or uh, you know it's Tuesday and it's a crappy day anything. But what actually causes it, which is Islamic ideology. Um, Why is this important? It's important because terrorists don't kill wantonly. We like to think of them as killing wantonly. We like to think that they're maniacs and that they do things for no reason. They're just perverse killers. They kill for a very specific reason. And that's what jihad is about. There's been a big debate about, it probably goes back to 1993, about what is jihad? And there's people on, in my camp who, are, who often will come out and say, there's no other jihad. Jihad is a military struggle, it's blowing up building, it's committing terrorism in order to advance their agenda. And then on the other side of it, you hear a lot of the apologists that you'll see on uh, television who are either uh, Muslims or usually American academics, and they tell you that no, no, no that's just an antiquated jihad the real jihad is the internal struggle to be a better person and if you listen to them long enough you would think that what jihad is is like remembering to brush after every meal and and that sort of thing Um, neither one of these things is is quite correct although I think the military side of it it has the better um, argument here Um, jihad is about implementing and spreading Sharia. Sharia is the Islamic legal and political system. Islam is not really a religion. It's an ideological, civilizational movement. Its ambitions are not to just have a spiritual code that people adhere to. It wants to control every aspect of life. Uh, Sharia rules have some spiritual principles but they dictate everything from uh, inheritance rules to marriage rules to rules of hygiene, uh, and they go up to uh, you know rules of of how the caliphate, the Islamic uh, governmental system, is supposed to operate uh, to military rules. They want to control everything. It's totalitarian in the literal sense. It, it it actually wants to control every aspect of your life. Um, Sharia is in Islamic ideology, and we, we will say Islamist ideology in the sense that we're talking about people who want to see Islamic uh, societies grow throughout the world. Um, Sharia is deemed to be the necessary precondition to Islamicizing a society. Uh, when you hear Muslims say, um, and, and this is particularly Islamists say, that there's no compulsion in Islam, that we would never force everybody to convert to Islam. Technically speaking, that's true. Um, But that doesn't mean that they wouldn't force you to live under Sharia. Uh, Sharia is a system that actually allows for non-Muslims to live as long as they submit to the authority of the Islamic State and pay the poll tax that they're required to pay. Uh, But they're not looking necessarily for everybody to become a Muslim right away. What they're looking for is to implement Sharia and spread it. And the idea is that once Sharia is instituted, then everybody over time will come to see the good sense of being a Muslim, and it won't, there won't be any need to compel anyone to become a Muslim because they'll, they'll just see the good sense in it, and that's the way things will go over time. So no, they won't force you at the point of a gun to convert, But they will force you with the point of a gun to institute Sharia. And what jihad is about is instituting Sharia. And it can be done by violence or it can be done by non-violence. An army doesn't have to attack if the other side is willing to cede territory. And they're perfectly content to to take what they can get without having to conduct terrorist attacks. Uh, And that's the kind of sh- uh, of jihad we're seeing today. We're seeing w- what, what some have called soft jihad. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood is the most important of the organizations. We hear talk about Al-Qaeda. We talk about, hear talk about the blind sheikh, all the terrorist organizations. It's understandable that they should be at the front of our attention given the horrific things that they can do when they carry out their attacks. But the most important Islamist organization in the world is the Muslim Brotherhood and has been since it was established in the 1920s. Unlike the terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda is just a flat-out extortionate terrorist organization. They want to bludgeon you into accepting Sharia. The Muslim Brotherhood will use terrorism, but they consider terrorism to be one item on the menu. If they think that using terrorism will further the cause, they'll use it if they think it's counterproductive, they'll be against it. But when they say that, you know, we're against this terrorist attack, that doesn't mean they're against terrorism. They're against terrorism in that context because they think, you know, it's a net loss for them rather than a gain for them. But the Brotherhood was started by a guy named Hassan Albana, uh, an Egyptian educator in the 1920s who looked at the same world that uh, Ataturk looked at in Turkey. Ataturk, said, Islam is what's holding us back, and basically tried to purge Islam from the public square. Banna, looking at the same circumstances, said no, 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 the problem isn't too much Islam. It's not enough Islam, and particularly not enough of the right kind of Islam. He wanted a reformist Islam that went back to the early generations, the first generations right after Muhammad. And he had a very sophisticated, ground-up Revolutionary program that really, in ground, when I say ground up, you, it started with the Muslim person. It built out to the family, the town, the state, the nation, and beyond. What they focused on was not necessarily terrorist attacks against people they perceived as their enemies, because they felt you don't want to have terrorist attacks until you're strong enough and ready enough to exploit the the outcome of terrorist attacks. What they wanted to do was take over the media, take over the classroom, which was probably more important than anything else, um, take over the government. Al-Qaeda will not negotiate with a government because they think that if you sit down and negotiate with a Western government or a government that doesn't follow Sharia, that you're legitimizing that government. That's a, it's, a, it's a dishonorable thing to do. The Brotherhood doesn't see it that way. They will not only negotiate with the government to try to bring them toward the Sharia agenda. They want to get inside the government and hollow it out from the inside and pursue the agenda from the inside. It's a very, very sophisticated program. And his game plan for it was that in every city and every town that they operated, they wanted to have what they called the axis of the movement. And the axis of the movement was going to be the mosque, and the Islamic Community Center in every town. And that was going to be the place from which they would radicalize people to their way of interpreting Islam. You should understand that in the United States, they have been at this now for three generations. They started with the Muslim Student Associations back in the early 1960s. There's now about 600 chapters of those associations in the United States and Canada. And what they basically do is indoctrinate people and raise Muslim Brotherhood activists. Um, From the Muslim Student Associations, they grew a a bigger organization called the Islamic Society of North America, probably the most important uh, Islamist organization in the United States. They're kind of the graduate program for the Muslim Students Association. Uh, They were shown in a 2008 Terrorism prosecution that the Justice Department did for funding Hamas with millions of dollars during the Intifada. The Islamic Society of North America was found to be front and center in the middle of that plot. The government proved that in 2008. In 2009, they had their annual convention. You know who their key, keynote speaker was? Valerie Jarrett. No. President Obama sent Valerie, Valerie Jarrett to be the keynote speaker for an organization that had been shown by his Justice Department to be complicit in a terrorism conspiracy the year before. Um, By then, unfortunately, that wasn't all that unusual. And I don't want to lay it all at the, the feet of the Obama administration, because it's been several administrations of both parties that have given entree to these different Muslim Brotherhood organizations. But they have been in our country for 60 years, um, almost all of the important Islamist organizations that you hear about are connected to the Muslim Brotherhood in one way or another, and they are—they have the red carpet rolled out to them in the councils of policy in the United States. They're punching way above their weight. I mean, if you think about it, you probably have three million Muslims in a country of 310 million people, and they have enormous influence. Uh, in in terms of how American policy gets made. Let me say one last thing because I think it's important to underscore this. I learned this when when I was a prosecutor and we were trying to hire people to help us translate recordings. We were way behind. When you take FBI translators off wiretaps to do discovery for trials, what that means is they may not... They may not find evidence of ongoing plots because you've got them doing, you know, doing stuff to get ready for trial. So it's, it's never a good thing to do that. Uh, so what we tried to do was hire some local Arabic-speaking people to make translations of tape recordings for us. You know, we didn't need them to testify at the trial. We just needed them to sort of push along our process of doing translations. I brought four local people in from the local. Muslim community, who all knew what they were doing. They came in, they knew we were prosecuting terrorists, and they were there to to try to volunteer to help us, uh, and, and they were certainly willing to do it. Every one of them, though, had one condition. They wanted a promise from me that no one would ever find out that they had helped the United States in a prosecution of terrorists. And that was not a commitment I could give to them because a prosecutor can only make a promise that, he's in, that he has the authority to keep. And the bottom line in a case is if a federal judge tells you to disclose something, even if you think it's wrong, you have to disclose it. So I told them I would do the best I could, and I thought I'd be able to keep their identities confidential, but I couldn't promise it. And they all declined to work for us. And it wasn't that they were worried about being killed, or, or I mean, there may have been some of that. There probably always is that in the back of someone's mind in a terrorism case. But what they were most afraid of was that they would, they and their families would be ostracized from their communities for helping the United States against terrorists. And what we what we found over and over again over the years is that there's a big divide in the country between the leadership of the Islamic communities, the imams and the, and the people who run the mosques and the Islamic centers and the rank-and-file Muslims in the United States. In my experience, at least, the rank-and-file Muslims in the United States tend to be pro-American and pro-Western and are willing to help the police, at least if they can do it confidentially. Now, that's not a blanket statement. There's a disturbing number of people who don't feel that way. But it's nothing compared to the leadership of the mosques, which tend to be uh, anti-American, anti-Western, and endorsing of a lot of violent, uh, not only violent rhetoric, but violent doctrine and violent literature that they disseminate freely in their mosques. We had a a study done very recently called a Mapping Sharia study that found that in 80% of mosques in the United States, they put out uh, literature which endorses jihadist violence, and in those mosques that have that material, the leadership of the mosques, particularly the imams, endorse the material and press it on people who come to the mosques. Now that doesn't again. We don't know how many people actually come to the mosques, but it does tell us a lot about the leadership, and it does tell us a lot about what's going on in those mosques and in the community. So the thought I'd like to leave you with is, yes, we have to be vigilant against terrorism. Uh, And yes, I think we've done an effective job on it, and, and we have to continue to do the things that we've done to make the country safe. But the bigger threat to us is the infiltration of this ideology, which is really on a plan to walk through, to march through our institutions, just like the old left wanted to march through our institutions. Um, The last book that I wrote was called The Grand Jihad. It was not a name that I made up after sort of observing this phenomenon over 20 years. The FBI actually raided the home in Virginia of a Muslim Brotherhood operative and found documents including a memorandum where the, the, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States is reporting to the head of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the global head of the Brotherhood, explaining what they think their mission is in America. And what he said was, in the memo, uh, they saw their mission as a grand jihad aimed at eliminating and destroying Western civilization from within by sabotage. That's what they say to each other when they speak to each other. They make no bones about the fact that their goal is to destroy us. And my only point, and the central point I want to make, is it's not just terrorism that they want to destroy us by. So in any event, thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate you. Thank you. Very much.